0: Now, the Gospel of Luke has the most of Christ's teachings out of all of four of the Gospels. It has more parables and more unique parables that you can't find anywhere else. And because this book has so much meat inside of it, it can be easy sometimes to get lost in the forest and forget why in the world Jesus is teaching all of these things. So we have to remember, Jesus is not just like some regular traveling philosopher or rabbi who's just teaching lessons on whatever comes to his mind. He has come to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God and himself as its king. And so all of its teachings have kind of this theme in mind. He is trying to explain to us what the kingdom of God is like and how we should live as citizens of that kingdom. In a way, every single sermon as we've gone through this book could have just be, okay, as citizens of the kingdom, how should we live? And so this morning in Luke chapter 17, our passage is going to tell us the kind of faith that the kingdom of God requires. It's going to tell us the attitude that we need to have and the timing of the kingdom that we should be prepared for. So if you have your Bible with you, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 17, Um, And if you would stand for the reading of God's word, as we'll read this whole chapter as is our regular habit. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause any one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them, and if he repents, forgive them. But if they sin against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like this grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you as a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will not he rather say to him, prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? And does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done what you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and praised God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. And being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. There will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, and on that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that on that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and one the other left. There will be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would come this morning. Lord, would your spirit um, open our hearts, open our ears, and open our eyes to see what it is that you have to teach us. There's a lot in here. There's too much to unpack. It's hard to see how it all ties together. Lord, would you help all of us to listen to your voice so that we can be more like your son, Jesus? Amen. You can have a seat. Our first point, um, if you are taking notes in your bulletins, is that the duty of the kingdom is a repentant faith. So the duty of the kingdom is a repentant faith. Now, the first um, mark of having a faith that is repentant um, is avoiding sin. Okay, because repentance means turning away from sin. Repentance isn't just being sorry that you were caught. It's not just saying, oh, I'm sorry if you were offended. Um, repentance acknowledges the sin that it's committed, and then it moves forward trying to be different. It moves forward. One of the things that repentance does is then tries to avoid sin, avoiding doing what it just did. Verse 1, Jesus says, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. That part's unfortunate, isn't it? The reality is there will always be temptations to sin. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not, there's going to be plenty of temptations and plenty of chances for you to engage in sin. No matter how much we might wish, temptations are always going to come in our lives. But if we are living a repentant faith, we can and we should and we must avoid those temptations. We can refuse to give in to the temptation and it can instead remain a temptation instead of being an incident or a moment of sin. And Jesus continues to tell us what a repentant faith is. It's not just that we should avoid sin ourselves or avoid those, but if we're really repentant, then we also shouldn't want to lead anybody else into sin. So we need to not just avoid the temptation to sin ourselves, but avoid tempting others. The rest of verse 1 says, but woe to the one through whom these temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. This is a prophetic woe or a declaration of judgment against anyone who would lead other people to sin. Now when we think about, you know, and when we do tempt people to sin, Jesus says, well, it'd be better to just have a rope typed around your neck and thrown you into the sea, which is pretty graphic, you might say harsh image. Now, how can we tempt other people to sin? When you read this passage or you think of it, you might think of some like very obvious examples. I picture somebody, you know, standing on the corner, yelling out, offering drugs to anybody who passed by, or calling someone up and saying, hey, you want to come over and let's get really drunk. Okay, those are obvious temptations to sin. I don't think that is the particular way that most of us here in this room tempt other people to sin. And usually I think we think of those examples so that we can let ourselves off the hook. My fear is that we can start to think, well, tempting others to sin, that's a really serious thing, and that's a serious thing other sinners do. Definitely not me. Okay, I think we do tempt other people to sin. I think a very common way we tempt other people to sin is when we sin against them. Okay, when you're rude to somebody, when you unfairly criticize them, you start being passive-aggressive, does that not tempt them to be sinful in how they respond back to you? Okay, when you hurt others, when you sin against other people, does that not tempt them to sin against you? When you begin to gossip, is that not inviting someone else to join in in your sin? There are so many other small little things and small ways that we tempt people to sin that we don't even realize that's what we're doing. I think we need to learn to see that our sinning against others is not just a sin against God, but we're also inviting and leading them down the path of sin as well. And when Jesus says those who do this to these little ones to sin, it doesn't appear to mean that he um, is only referring to children. Although certainly we can understand these words, right? Somebody who sins against children or is leading children down a path of sin deserves harsh judgment because of the price those kids are going to have to pay for it. Um, But it appears to have a much wider range than that. Um, It seems to be referring mostly to young Christians or those who are young followers of Jesus or recent converts. In the Jewish world, little ones would usually refer to immature disciples. People, you know, they're on the path, but they haven't quite figured it all out. And one of the problems with immature people um, is that they act like immature people, and they sin in immature ways, and it can be frustrating. But Jesus tells us we need to take special care with those little ones, that if we're going to have a repentant faith, then we need to continue to try to help them repent and to teach them from how to avoid sin and to stay, keep them from going right up to sin's door, especially because of our own actions. Now, the main way that this can happen is how we respond to our brothers and sisters in faith when they sin, even if they are a big immature mess. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke him. Rebuke them. So, if we see our fellow Christians sinning, we are commanded, not just here, but in many other places, to tell them to stop, to rebuke them and say, you're sinning, you need to knock that off. This is an uncomfortable part of our duty as Christians. Okay, now we're not supposed to go around rebuking unbelievers or rebuking everybody we see, but we are commanded to rebuke our brothers and sisters in the faith when they are not following Jesus. It's not that we correct everybody, but we are to correct each other, especially in our own local church where we have ties and are part of the same family. And if he repents, then forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in that day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This part's also hard. So part of our responsibility is not just to rebuke them, but then if they repent, to then forgive them. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no consequences for sin. It doesn't mean that we might not need to put up healthy boundaries or that there will have to be, you know, repercussions for what they've done. But it does mean that if they repent, there must be forgiveness There has to be a way forward and a path towards redemption and towards restoration. After all, this is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, we have to repeatedly forgive other people even if seven times on the same day they keep doing the same thing. My kids only have to do something twice before I'm losing my mind on the same day. Somebody does the same thing seven times, we're supposed to continue to forgive them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus continues to do for all of us every day. I don't know about you, but I think we probably all sin a little more than seven times in a day. And yet Jesus forgives us. And because of his forgiveness, we should forgive one another. Now, that sounds really hard. It's hard to forgive somebody repeatedly for the thing that they keep doing. And if we're going to do that, we need to have faith. And we might need to have a little more faith than we do right now, which is why the disciples in verse 5 say, increase our faith. This is a good response. We're asking for God's help. Oh man, that sounds hard. You're going to have to help me do that. I think they, you know, they're saying, okay, I've got some faith, but I obviously need more." And this is where Jesus responds with one of his more famous statements. Jesus said, or the Lord says to him in verse six, "If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, "Be uprooted and plant in the sea, and it would obey you." Now I think we can get a little off track sometimes on what this statement means. This doesn't seem to be Jesus um, talking about all the amazing things we could accomplish if we just had faith. I don't think this is just Jesus saying, "If you just really believed, um, you could just go and work miracles. You could heal the blind. You could make it rain from heaven whenever you wanted. You could call out bears like Elijah. You know, destroy your enemies." I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here in this. What he seems to be saying is, if you had faith, that if you just have a small amount of faith, it is enough to do more than you could imagine, to accomplish the impossible like forgiving somebody you really don't want to forgive who continues again and again and again and again to sin against you. But if you have faith, and if you have a repentant faith, you can. We don't need to have faith um, like Peter when he took that first step out on the water. We don't have to have faith like King David when he fought the giant Goliath without fear. We don't have to have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go into the flame saying, well, maybe God will save me, maybe he won't. We just need to have a little faith, because a little faith, even as small as a mustard seed, if it's in Jesus, is all that's required, and it is more than enough to do what he asks. He then tells us a a short story about a servant, um, which can be strange and confusing in 7. You know, if any one of you, if you have a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's come in the field, come at once, recline at the table, or will he not say, no, get to work, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat, and afterwards you can eat and drink. And does he thank the servant because of what he's done? Uh, The the implied answer is supposed to be no. So you also, when you've done that, you're commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. This is a quick illustration of a servant doing whatever his master commands. He says, go get dressed. He gets dressed, feed me. He does it. And in verse 9, that phrase, you know, do you thank the servant? It doesn't just mean like he says, oh, thank you for doing that. It more means like he finds, is he going to find favor? Is he going to give him um, extra blessings and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you did what I asked here. I'm going to give you, you know, a new car, an inheritance. I'm going to give you so much more than you could have imagined. Um, he's not going to get any extra blessings or gifts from his master because he did what he was supposed to do. Duh. Why? The servant's just done his duty. He's not gone above and beyond. He's not done what no one was do, He's done what was expected. He's done what is commanded. And so, just as the servant in the story does what he was commanded, so are we supposed to. We have been commanded to have a repentant faith, to forgive one another, to avoid sin not not lead others into temptation. And so, we should do our duty. We should do it. And this is what citizens of the kingdom of God do. This is what we've been commanded by our king to do. And when we hear duty, we can can have such a negative connotation sometimes, at least just for me. Um, but this isn't Jesus telling us to, you know, do it out of drudgery. It's not like we've got to drag our feet um, in faith. Well, God commanded me, I guess I, guess I have to do this. It, it's meant to be, um, and this faith is supposed to be natural. It should just abound out of us, and it should just come. It should be as natural as breathing. We should just be people who repent of our sin. We should be people who confront one another when they sin. We should be a people who forgive one another as soon as they repent. Even if we have to keep forgiving one another, we just do it. We should be a people who have faith, no matter how small. And we shouldn't do it because we're trying to earn something. We shouldn't do it um, because we're trying to earn salvation or eternal rewards. We should do it just because it's who we are. It is our duty. It is what part of just being a Christian means. We can't imagine any other way to live. That's what Jesus is calling us to, to have, to have the duty of repentant faith. It should be as natural as breathing. So that's point number one is our duty that we should do. Point number two, if you're taking notes, is that we should have an attitude of gratitude. Or the attitude of the kingdom is gratitude. If we are citizens of the kingdom of God, if we are followers of Jesus, we should be a people who are continually grateful that we get to be a part of this kingdom. We should be grateful for the mercy that Jesus has shown us. And Jesus shows us and demonstrates this through his interaction with some lepers. In verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he's passing along Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village. He was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. So he comes into this village. There's some lepers. They're not close. They seem to be very far away. And they're so far away, they have to yell at Jesus so he can hear them. And they lifted up their voices. They're yelling, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so they stand at a distance because they're unclean, right? They can't come close to people. Even when they are in the village, if they were ever allowed to be around it, they're having to constantly yell out, unclean, unclean, stay away from me. But this time their voices are not being lifted up to shout that they are unclean. They're crying out and they're begging for mercy. 14, and when Jesus sees them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Jesus answers, he does show them mercy. Because anyone who dares to cry out to Jesus to ask for mercy, will receive it. You can cry out to Jesus wherever you are. You can scream it aloud from the street. You can whisper it quietly in your heart. But all who cry out to Jesus will be heard and will find it. I cry out in faith. And he tells them something interesting, though. He doesn't heal them immediately. Um, he tells them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, we might wonder why does he do that? They would not have wondered, especially as lepers. They would know exactly why. Leviticus 13 describes in detail what leprosy looks like, what leprosy, how leprosy is supposed to be handled, and what they're supposed to do. And one of the things is they have to wait till it goes away, and when it goes away, they can't stop yelling unclean. They can't go and participate in worship or Israel's life until they go to the priest and they show themselves there. The priest has to see them. The priest has to examine them and then look at them and say, okay, now you are healed. Now you are clean. So Jesus is saying, go see the priest. Show the priest your bodies. Now, if the lepers looked down as Jesus said it, they would still say, "Uh, well, I still have leprosy here. I haven't been healed yet. They would know that it hasn't been healed yet. And so they're having to go towards the priest in faith. Trusting that Jesus will heal them, even though he hasn't yet. Jesus is asking them to start walking towards the priest, believing that he'll heal them. It would have taken faith to take that first step in that direction. Reminds me of Abraham being called by God. Abraham, leave your father and your house and everything you know. Go to a place that I'll show you. I won't even tell you where it is yet. Just start walking. And like Abraham, these lepers go in faith. And as they went, as they take those steps in obedience... They were cleansed. As they're going on the journey, they're made clean. And somewhere, don't know exactly where, while they're walking, one of them looks down and notices it happened. He did heal us. 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, one of them happens to look down and notice. Jesus heard their cry, and immediately he turned back. He praises God with a loud voice. He runs all the way back, falls on his face at Jesus' feet, and gives him thanks Now he was a Samaritan. That same loud voice before that cried out loudly, begging for mercy, now cries out, shouting and lifting his voice in praise. The voice that cried out, unclean, now praises the God who makes people clean. And this leper goes right to Jesus. No longer is he at a distance yelling across town or across the street. He is at Jesus' feet and he falls at them. Now we don't know for sure. I think it's likely he probably touched Jesus because now he could. And he specifically is thanking Jesus for healing him. This is remarkable for a number of reasons, especially because he's a Samaritan. He's the least likely person to come back. He's the least likely person to have faith. He's the least likely person to be grateful to this Jewish rabbi for healing him. But he does. It also seems that he doesn't wait before going to the priest. He doesn't wait. He doesn't go to the priest first. He doesn't wait until he's been declared clean. Before he does anything, he runs right back to Jesus to praise Him, and to thank Him. This is when Jesus says, well, didn't I heal ten of you? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise except this foreigner? Now, Jesus wants to know why only one came back. Ten of them were cleaned, but the only one who came back was the Samaritan, the unexpected one. This isn't Jesus not liking Samaritans. This is Jesus trying to use the Samaritan as a positive example to show how flawed and sinful the other Jewish lepers are. The Samaritans were thought to be heretics. They were enemies, not the heroes. But all throughout the Bible, it is the unexpected people. It is the foreigners. It is the far off. It is the weak and the overlooked who have true faith. And here, it's the Samaritan leper who has true gratitude that can't wait to go thank Jesus while the others don't ever seem to come back. Maybe they thought they would put it off, but they never returned. And in 19, Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Tells them, stand up. Go back to the priest now, I think. Continue on your way. Get back to your life. And he says, your faith has saved you. I don't think it's just that your faith has made you well or that it's healed you. I think this is Jesus saying that you, because of your faith and your gratitude and your trust and what I have given, it is given you salvation. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves as we read this story is, um, are we grateful? Are we grateful to the mercy that God has given us? I mean, there are millions or billions of people that experience great blessings from God, and not all of us are grateful. Not all of us appreciate the mercy that we've seen. For some of us, salvation is old news, something we celebrated a long time ago. It's not quite as exciting now as it used to be. There were nine lepers that didn't come back, nine people who were healed and experienced the blessing of Jesus and weren't that grateful about it. Only the Samaritan is. We should be like the Samaritan. We should be grateful. We should sing on Sunday morning like those who are grateful. We should receive the cup and eat the bread of communion gratefully. We should live all of our lives in gratitude for the salvation and the mercy that Jesus has shown us. What would it look like if we had this kind of gratitude? All the time. And to keep moving, point number three, um, if you're taking notes, is we need to recognize that the kingdom um, is both now and not yet. It is both here and it is also coming. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So the Pharisees want to know, and Jesus gets asked this question over and over. So when is this kingdom you keep talking about? When is it going to get here? When is it coming? It's a question the disciples ask, everyone asks, when is Israel going to be restored to power and glory? When are you going to overthrow the Romans? When will the kingdom of God reign? When is the Messiah going to start keeping all these promises that you made throughout the prophets? And Jesus gives a frustrating answer in 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is among you, or it is in the midst of you says, you're not going to be able to see the kingdom when it comes. You won't be able to observe it or tell. Because their vision of the kingdom is wrong. They expect it to come physically and literally and obviously. They expect to be able to point at it and look and say, ah, there it is. It's starting. But Jesus says, no, you're not going to be able to. Why? Because the kingdom is already here. The kingdom is already among you and in your midst. You just saw it proclaimed and lived in by a Pharisee or a Samaritan. And now you see it. It's king standing before you. The kingdom is both here now, and it's also not yet here, but it is present in this very moment. It's present here in this moment now, but it will come more fully when Jesus returns again. This is the dual frustration that they felt and that we get to see now. But Jesus says to his disciples in 22, The days are coming when you will desire to see the days of the Son of Man, meaning um, the full revealing of the kingdom, and you won't see it. How many of us long to see the days of the Son of Man, the days of the kingdom? many of us long to see Jesus make his kingdom reign? Hopefully all of us do. Um, But Jesus tells them and probably tells us too, well, you're not going to see it yet. You're going to have to keep waiting. 23, then he warns them, and there will be those who say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out and follow them. This is a warning for us especially a warning we need to heed, maybe even more than the disciples did. There's going to be so many people who will try to tell you, the end is coming. It's here. There will people who try to uh, predict the appearance of the kingdom, when Jesus will return. They're going to pull out their charts, all their knowledge of prophecy, and say, here, look at this news story. Oh, look what's happening over here. Read the newspaper. Watch this TikTok I saw. See, the kingdom of God's coming. Prophecy is being fulfilled. We're so close to the end times. Jesus says, don't listen to any of those people. Don't listen to those who say, look here and look over there. Don't go out, don't follow them, don't pay attention to them. Okay, I think this is really relevant for us today. Okay, there's a war going on right now. Well, there's many of them, but there's one in Israel and Palestine and the terrorist organization Hamas. And there are many who are tempted, and I've already heard them and get emails from random people all the time who just email every pastor they can find, who try to point out to every war, every news thing that happens in the Middle East or in Israel. And try to explain what all of it means and tell you, oh, see this prophecy and I know it. The end is almost here. Jesus says, do not listen to any of those people. Do not pay attention to them. No one will be able to figure out the future coming of the kingdom ahead of time. Not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. 24, for as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. If you are outside and it is dark and your eyes are open and lightning flashes, you will see it. It's hard to miss. It lights up the whole sky. You can hear the thunder boom. And just as you can't miss it when lightning comes, no one's going to miss the kingdom when it comes in the future. You're not going to have to debate and wonder and sit around and argue, well, which version of millennialism or the thousand-year reign is correct? Okay, when it comes, it'll be very obvious. And everyone will have it figured out. We will all know. Many of us will say, oh, I was wrong. I didn't get that right. But here it is. But when will it come? 25, he says, well, first, Jesus has to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The kingdom of Jesus can't come until he suffers and dies. The glory of the kingdom only comes after suffering and death. The kingdom will bring glorious and wonderful victory, but that victory only comes through suffering, rejection, shame. Instead of parades of glory that they want, they will see the Messiah paraded around and spit upon him as he carries his cross. 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, eating and drinking, marrying, given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came, destroyed them all. Now the future appearance of God's kingdom will be unexpected. So you say Noah's day, people were just going about their business. They weren't listening, weren't paying attention. They went through their ordinary life, and suddenly the flood came and destroyed them. This is what God's kingdom will come like. It will come unexpectedly, suddenly, and it seems then, too, the wicked and evil will be destroyed. And likewise, just as in the days of Lot, we're going to talk about this on Wednesday. Um, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur, rain from heaven destroyed them all. The same thing happened in Sodom. They're going through their normal day. God's judgment came. Verse 30, so it will be like that when the Son of Man is revealed on that day. God's kingdom is going to come like those days. And on that day, when it comes, the wicked will face justice. Those who have not put their faith in Jesus, those who have not begged for mercy will no longer find it. And this is the day when justice will finally reign and all the wrong will be cast out of this world. And on that day... 31, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And with the one who's in the field, not turn back. The point of us here, what Jesus is trying to say, okay, isn't trying to figure out all the details of his coming. How all these things line up. And it's very tempting to, and I, I really wish that I could too. And I haven't figured it out yet. And I'm trying. The point of it is that we're supposed to be ready. Don't be like what the world is doing, but be preparing for that day recognize that, well, part of the kingdom is already here and part of the kingdom is going to come. And 32, we need to remember Lot's wife. This is the key part. If you don't don't understand anything in the whole last part of this chapter, that's okay. Just focus on 32, 33. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot's wife looked back. And it's not just that she looked back on what was happening. It was that she looked back with longing. She wanted to go back. She wanted to return to that life instead of the salvation that God offered. And so she died. Likewise, we need to not look back. We need to look forward to the kingdom that is to come. Whenever it is, whatever it will look like, however it might come and be envisioned. And we need to love and long for God's kingdom more than any kingdom of this world. we need to live for that eternal future instead of the present that is going to fade away and disappear. 34, I tell you in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken, one will be left, two will be grinding together, one will be taken, another will be left. This is a very famous image. Kingdom appears, some are taken, some are left. Here, it's really not clear at all what that means. Okay, being taken could be a good thing, as in taken away and saved from judgment, or it could be the more normal use of taken, which means taken away to judgment and to death, as being washed away by the flood or fire or sulfur, and the only people who remain are the righteous. Now, I I personally um, don't believe in the rapture. I don't think there's going to be like a secret coming of Jesus before his true and final return. I've studied. I've tried. Um, I just don't see it in the scripture. It seems to me to say that Jesus' coming is going to be obvious and not secret or mysterious. Um, I think he'll return in power and glory after a period of suffering and tribulation, and then the kingdom gets set up. Now, I could be wrong. I'm wrong about a lot of things, so I could be wrong on that one. Uh, Maybe the Bible does teach the rapture. Maybe it does teach a secret coming. It's not super obvious here in just these verses in this place. The main idea of it anyway with all of this is that we need to be ready because some people are going to be ready and others aren't. And if that part's not clear, 37 is really unclear. So they say to him, "Uh, where, Lord? And he says to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures were gathered. Strange, it's hard to understand. It seems to me, I think, best as I can get, the disciples are asking, well, where are these people being taken? And Jesus says, where the corpses and the verters were gathered. Um, Seems like not a good place to be taken, I don't think. Or wherever this is, it's not good. Now again, we can get get distracted. Maybe I'm getting distracted. um, By all the questions and all the things we don't understand about God's kingdom and the not yet part of it and when it will come. We can chase down um, all those questions. We can read all the commentaries and all the scholars. Uh, I did a lot of that this week. There's about 53 different answers for what Jesus means. And 37, I read them all, um, gave you the best one I got. And I'm, you know, you could push me off of it. I'm not totally convinced. Okay, part of that is the point, I think. Okay, we don't have all of the answers. And we never will have all of the answers until the kingdom comes. And when it does, we're not going to miss it. I promise you, whether you spend the rest of your life studying nothing but the coming of the kingdom or you never give it a second thought, it's going to come, and when it comes, you'll know, and you'll see it, and it'll be wonderful if you put your faith in Jesus. So for now, I think for us, we should pay a little more attention. What Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees and his disciples to see is, yeah, the kingdom's going to come. There's going to be other stuff about it, but it's already here in your midst, You need to pay attention to the part of the kingdom that is here today. The kingdom that is indestructible and will never fade. The kingdom whose light will continue to shine no matter how dark the world gets. A kingdom whose king has already arrived. And our salvation is not off in the future. Jesus already brought it in his life, death, and resurrection. We can already experience it here and now. While we wait for the joy that is more fully to come, it is surely here. And we can see it and we can taste it. And so we have to wait on part of the timing of the kingdom. And no, it's not yet. There is a very significant part of the kingdom that we shouldn't look past that is here now. We should enjoy it. And summary. where have we been? Well, duty of the kingdom is a repentant faith. The attitude of the kingdom is gratitude, and the timing of the kingdom, it's both now and not yet, but it will be one day. So as we go into our week, um, and we should live with repentant faith, should avoid sin, forgive one another, should have an attitude of gratitude and be grateful for the salvation that Jesus has brought us, and we should enjoy the kingdom that we have here and now that we live in and get to experience. As we wait for our blessed hope of the kingdom to come. Won't you pray with me and invite our worship team to come up once more. Lord, I I pray that you would. um, Jesus, would you come? Would you bring your kingdom? Um, It's easy and, and it's hard for me as somebody who's analytical. I just want to understand everything. And I don't. And it frustrates me. Lord, would you help me and would you help us um, to not get obsessed with the stuff that we don't understand? Would you help us to hold on to what we do understand and what we do know? Would you help us to live today like followers of you, knowing and hoping and trusting that you are coming again? and that your coming is the realization of all of our hopes and better than our wildest imaginations. Would you help us to live today in a way that brings honor and glory to your name and to your kingdom? I pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we worship our Savior one more time? benediction this month is from 2 Corinthians 13-14. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.